Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are a Jesus community telling the biggest story of God in Los Angeles in 2020. We're thankful that you're joining the conversation with us today. Enjoy. The great hope in Christ is that as we deepen and expand our own knowing of the love of God, that that we can find our way to loving our enemies. Um, but if we're going to talk about loving our enemies, we have to talk about anger and hatred. So as we go into our conversation time today, the question for you to engage with is this. Um, what did you learn, did your family and community teach you about anger and hatred growing up? Have a good conversation. All right, welcome back to the bigger conversation, which is me and you and God and the Spirit of God working inside of you as you hear what I have to say and as you reflect on how that might affect you and your life, whether it's like Anthony or dealing with parents, um, whether it's something bigger like this national divide that we're in. Um, I hope and pray and my prayer as we as we come is that our ears will be open to hear what God has to say to each of us individually. Because as with everything in the spiritual life, the journey to following the command that Jesus said to love your enemies uh, is an individual one. And what that's going to look like for each of us is going to be individual. And the hard work of faith of following Jesus into this biggest story of God that we are here about at New Abbey is that we have to take personal responsibility. And a lot of what we've seen over this election cycle, over these last four years even, is a lot of blaming the other, calling out the other, name, name, name uh, calling, pointing the finger, and it's created um, a kind of a war zone, to be honest, um, out of our political uh, uh, field. And it's also created war zones within our families. So there's really two, more than two layers we're working with today, but there's certainly the collective. Uh, President-elect Biden offered us a call, you know, to stop the, the name calling, to stop the othering and the, uh, the enemy making, and to come together not as Republicans, as Democrats, but as Americans, as people united uh, in a pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness and well-being for all. That is a complicated thing, and yet that is the call of the gospel, to, to welcome and, and support shalom for all, well-being for all. So when Corey asked me uh, a month or so ago if um, I'd be willing to preach this Sunday because he was going to be gone, now that was a smart move. Uh, <laughs> thanks a lot, Corey, if you happen to be listening. But uh, I thought to myself, okay, what's it going to be like on that day? And what would be a good word to bring? And this is a topic I've taught on over the years uh, in various settings because it's really important to me uh, because I grew up in a family that didn't deal well with anger and hatred. And I learned a lot about it through my own journey 
And I remember a critical point in 1999 when I was, uh, doing a lot of clinical therapy work with adolescents, and a lot of them who were at odds with their parents, there was a lot of conflict. And it often had to do with the fact that the family didn't know how to deal with emotion. They didn't know how to deal with these aggressive energies that are really God's gift to us, the pathos of life, the passion, the energy that says, I want to have a cookie. That's that's, a, that's an energy for life. I want to feel good. I want to taste that delight. You know, and, and, and if we don't learn as children from our families how to deal with those passions, how to set healthy boundaries, how to regulate the emotional life, then we end up with something like in 1999 when we had the Columbine shooting, high school shooting in, in Colorado. And these two young men... Uh, who'd been bullied, who'd been othered, who'd been ostracized, ended up going on a shooting spree and killing dozens. I forget how many, but it was a massacre. And it was the first of what would go on to become many over these years. And I was like, oh my gosh, what happened to these kids? How, how did this happen? And I began to study about hatred. I even read a book, there's an entire book called The Art of Hating, which I might reference later. But So it's become something that's been really um, both a personal journey and a clinical journey working with other people. And then just a theoretical journey of trying to understand what is it that makes people the way they are? How does it that we turn our Aunt Judy into the enemy because she is a hater um, of the very things that are important to us? So as we come today, um, the question is both, how are we going to move forward uh, as, a, as a nation beyond junior high name calling and memeing? I mean, hey, I've been loving those memes myself, I have to say. You know, and yet that whole thing is, is part of the objectification of people that turns people into jokes. We, we have, uh, you know, the, the two adult men, you know, in their 70s, calling each other names? Excuse me? That is just really, really sad. That is, that is so sad, really. And, you know, so how are we as a people, as a church, but as a nation going to move beyond that into something where we can see um, what, who has been an enemy as our neighbor and to realize that we are neighbors, that we are brothers and sisters. <clears throat> so how are we then going to love Aunt Judy, Uncle Joe, our mom and dad, our brother, our sister um, at Christmas, uh, at other family times over the next few years because I suspect that this divide will continue to be part of our national journey um, uh, probably beyond the time of my own death in some 20, 30, 40 years, I don't know. But I, I anticipate this is not going to go away anytime soon. So it's a big question, and I have probably four or five sermons I could have preached today, and hopefully I can pare it down to one and 
get us out of here before three o'clock. So we'll see, we'll see how that goes. Um, all right, so the passage, I'm going to read this whole passage because as often happens with scripture, we look at one piece. But I think as we look at this passage of Jesus's teaching, we're going to see it in context that will help us look at how it is we really can love our enemies. So the passage from Luke 6, 20 through 42. And this is one of several renderings of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. There's also Matthew 6, which I'll reference a little bit when we get into this. But um, Jesus was teaching, and he'd been doing a lot of healing, and people were all around coming and seeking out the power that was coming from him. And he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. Okay, like, I mean, that's crazy talk, right? Just a side note. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. More crazy talk. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes your shirt, do not withhold even your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who hate you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. And he also told them a parable, can a blind person guide a blind person? Will not both fall into the pit? A disciple is not above the teacher, but everyone who is qualified, fully qualified, will be like the teacher. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own? And how can you say to your neighbor, friend, let me take that speck out in it, t let me take out the speck in your eye when you yourself do not see the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly how to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Thanks be to God for whatever good will come as we listen uh, more to what this passage might have to say to us in our particular situation. So it's a baffling passage. 
because it really bursts open and breaks down our conditioned, natural human way of wanting to engage with life. Um, it, it, it tells us a different story. Um, be encouraged, you who are poor and hungry. Be encouraged, blessed, what? Uh, blessed are you whose candidate lost the election? What? No, that's crazy talk. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full. Woe to you whose candidate won the election. Mm, what does that mean? So it's this, what one pastor, my pastor Daryl Johnson called, it's calling us to be right side up in an upside down world. That the world and as limited human beings, we see like this much of reality. But in the bigger uh, picture, it's so much bigger. And as we all know, yeah, four years ago, we were weeping. I was weeping. Not all of us were weeping. There are those in our community who might have been happy about the uh, Trump's election. So I don't want to assume that everyone in this community uh, has the same view. But I was severely distressed. Um, now, I'm happy. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I feel a sense of rejoicing. But what Jesus says is don't get too caught up in feeling good about what happened or feeling bad about what happened because things are going to change. You know, it doesn't stay the same. And that's a grace because the truth is we need that diversity. That this, the pendulum of life swings one way and then it corrects and part of the beauty of democracy is we, we do have that happen. It's a, it's a crazy ride, but it's a necessary ride for, for the, the whole of humanity to have a participation, to get to be represented, to have a voice. Um, the main point of this is do, do to others as you would have them do to you. Tucked in the middle of this is that golden rule. And the love that Jesus commands us to have for the enemy is not a feel good, it's not liking them or thinking well of them, but it's to will the good for them. To will that they too could have shalom that they too could be blessed to have what benefits them, what supports them in their life. Agape is about action. Um, if you want to know more about that, check out the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, because the, the good is not about a feeling like loving them, like, oh, I love my Aunt Judy because she's such a hater. No, it's wish well, hope for good for them. That is hard to do. Um, I have to confess that um, when a certain person came down with COVID, um, I was not wishing them well, to be honest. And to pray for the wellness of the president when he was sick was not something I found myself able to do. And I wondered if those people that said, oh, we're praying for the president to get better, I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I believe you. You know, because the truth is, is that we are a mix. We have these things in us that say, uh-uh, I really think it'd be really nice if he suffered a bit. 
you know? What about the 200,000 people that have died? Because in my opinion, he did not do a good job managing it. We are a mix. And so the point of this is, at the end of this reading, deal with your inner enemy. Deal with the log in my own eye before I go running about to take the speck out of my neighbors. And what we've been in a, a situation with politically and what we get into with our families is, you did it, it's his fault. You know, blaming someone else. It's from the beginning of time. Adam and Eve, you know, the story, the apple. You know, God comes and says, what's happened here? And they look at each other. She gave me the apple, you know? And the apple, and Eve's like, the snake gave it to me. And this symbolic story tells us the human condition. We don't want to, we don't, we don't know how to take responsibility for our part in things. And so it's much more convenient and less work to point the finger. So to love the enemy outside of us, we've got to deal with our inner enemies, uh, which means dealing with my own demons what terrorizes me to deal with my own emotional regulation of these energies that end up making me hate people. To know about that um, is what I really went to therapy for myself and what led me to become a therapist. And to learn that the energy of anger is a protective energy. When our lives feel threatened, physically, a surge of energy arises in us to protect so we can fight off what is threatening us or run away from it. What often happens if we've grown up in a family where emotions were not dealt with in a healthy way or we were told anger is bad or things like that is we shut down, we freeze. And we don't have access to the very energy that we need to survive our lives and really ultimately to thrive. Because anger is very closely connected with the, the passion, the aggression, the, the I want to go get that cookie, which if we're not allowed to protest and have our feelings about the cookie and be, be taught, you know, I hear you, sissy, I know you want another cookie, but you know, you don't get a cookie. Oh, it's very, I want my cookie. I know, it's terrible that you can't have a cookie till later after. You know, that's what kids have to learn is how to tolerate that intense emotion. You know, so parenting, oh my gosh, what a hard job. One of my friends in the community's got a four-year-old and oh my goodness, you know, hearing her like, he's just like, ah, I can't, I don't control him. There, she's a great mom. She's doing everything she can. But it's like, it's hard. It's hard as little beings to, to figure out what to do with all of this energy. And so it gets shut down. It gets repressed. Um, we get told not to say certain things or, you know, don't cry. Don't be a sissy. Man up or, you know, oh, all this stuff. And so we have limited access, not just to anger, but to the energy that helps us advocate, to 
thrive in our lives, to go after things, to follow our dreams. And so emotional well-being and, and the ability to deal with emotion is core to this conversation and to really ultimately my own shalom and the shalom of the whole world. And what we see in the people who have worked for justice, who've been great advocates for, for change, is they were people that learned how to deal with themselves in ways that they were able to be effective in spaces where there was a lot of inner, uh, conflict. Um, but more on that later. So there's two things that happen that create anger. I mean, two ways of thinking about anger in my mind, and there's a lot, but one is when we're deprived of the very thing we need to thrive. So when we don't get what we need as children, when our parents aren't available and unable to support us, we feel angry, we feel enraged. The other thing is when we're actually oppressed, when we're violated, when we're physically, mentally, uh, spiritually abused, when we're traumatized. Anger wells up in those moments to tell us, no, this is not okay. It's not okay that I'm not getting what I need. And it's not okay that people are hurting me. And it's the boundary setting emotion that enables us to say, yeah, no, I'm not gonna have that conversation with you mom and dad right now because I can feel the energy arising in me that tells me I'm gonna flip my lid. If you think about your brain as a hand, your, your wrist is like your survival brain where we all the automatic functions are. And that's the part of the brain that has a lot of the, the survival mechanisms that well up and tell us to run or to fight or shut us down. The automatic things that we do when we're afraid, when we feel threatened. If you think about your thumb as your middle brain or your emotional brain, where all your passions, your desires, and your energies live, that's the middle brain. And at the front is the prefrontal orbital cortex or the executive brain. And that whole thing is formed and developed and, and integrated through empathy. So when we're dysregulated, what happens is we start to lose access to our thinking brain that knows that there's consequences to my saying this in front of my Aunt Judy or whomever. And we say things we don't want to say ultimately. So this week, I had to rent a car. Actually, for the past month, I've been dealing with a, a car situation, and I finally got it to the repair shop, and I had to rent a car. And then the car, all these warning lights come on. It's like, rrr, rrr, don't drive this car. So I'm like, I need a new car. Days later, they're still not calling me back. I finally get a new car. I don't take a lot of time to deal with it. I bring the car back, and the guy's going around the car, and he's like, what about this scratch? It's not noted on the record. And I start to flip my lid because I'm sick and tired of dealing with this car. And I feel my energies like this. And I immediately, a surge of, hey, I did not do that. And she marked it down. I, she actually, and, you know. And I start kind of going off on this guy. And, not too badly, but I could feel my lid starting to go. And what I was able to do is to recognize and to start to calm myself down and realize that he's not the enemy and get my lid back on. What anger does when we don't learn to skillfully work with it is we flip our lids, and that's when we go to rage, that's when we go to tantrums, that's when we go to, Ugh. 
And what we need is empathy. So in that moment, when you start to feel the energies arise to catch ourselves and to try to calm, to breathe, to bring ourselves back, which is a lot of what parenting is. And when we do that self-empathy, that they're there, sissy, it's okay, it's all right. When we can do that for ourselves, when we can do that for our kids, it actually helps to integrate the brain. Empathy builds the networks that hold the, the brain together, that integrate and enable us to have resiliency the ability to experience strong energies and not flip our lids. So anger is a key part of this because if we don't learn to deal with anger well, then we are going to be most likely to repress it. And that repression of healthy anger can lead to hatred. And one way to think about hatred is, is it's an expression of chronic rage that concretizes in the desire to destroy. And we see this in terrorists. So there's this hatred of the other that wants to destroy because years and generations of feeling oppressed, of feeling degraded, of having your lands fought, you know, there's stuff in the human psyche that if we don't deal with it, it goes awry. Hatred is, it can be a, a perverse form of attachment. Um, we're still, we're, we're actually obsessed with the other. We're so merged with the other uh, that it becomes like a part of our identity in a way that is, is actually the very thing we don't want. We don't want that other and to have so much control, but in the, in, the, in the journey with hatred, they take up all this space. And that's a lot of what we see posting in, in social media, is what is that about, that we're so obsessed with posting about how bad the other side is? I mean, if we went through the social media feeds, how much of it is that, and how much of it is us advocating for our own view of a, but a better world? Um, another form of hatred is narcissistic rage. And, you know, if you hear of anybody you know that sounds like matches this, a response <clears throat> to the painful destruction of a core sense of self, the fragmentation that happens when our very live personhood feels threatened, there's an eruption of rage that wants revenge with a desire to afflict on the one who hurt us the same thing. So there are these different forms of hatred that come into our world, sexism, racism, homophobia, misogyny. Prejudice of all types are a form of hatred where these people groups get concretized as the ones who are bad. Hatred actually has a protective function uh, as a defense mechanism that we can form around ourselves a shell, a hard-heartedness that protects us from feeling vulnerable, from facing our own human limits and the fact that we are only one person and we cannot always have it our way and that our views are not the only view that might have some validity. So when we hate the other, we don't have to deal with our own limitations. 
There's a story um, at a, for, for the bigger picture of how Nelson Mandela, who spent 27 years in prison in South Africa because of his choice to actually engage in violent protests against apartheid. And Bill Clinton writes the foreword to his book and, and tells the story, uh, Mandela saying, when you are young and strong, you can stay alive on your hatred, and I did for many years. Then one day after years of imprisonment, physical and emotional abuse and separation from his family, Mandela said, I realized that they could take everything from me except my mind and heart. They could not take those things from me, those things I had control over, and I decided not to give them away. Bill Clinton said in a conversation with him, uh, I said to him, tell me the truth. When you were leaving prison after 27 years and walking down the road to freedom, didn't you hate them all over again? And Mandela said, absolutely I did because they'd imprisoned me for so long I was abused. I didn't get to see my children grow up. I lost my marriage and the best years of my life. I was angry and I was afraid because I had not been free in so long. But as I got closer to the car that would take me away, I realized that when I went through that gate, if I still hated them, they would still have me. I wanted to be free, so I let it go. That's the invitation, is to realize that our hatreds, our othering, our name-calling, really hold us in prison. They keep us on the hook. They take away our shalom and well-being. I learned a lot about this from my mother. My mom was a formidable woman. She was a force to be reckoned with. And she was also quite funny and witty and entertaining, as you can see from this next photo, where my mom got in a box. <laughs> yes, that is my mother in a box. Um, she told me one day when we were on a vacation, when I was in my graduate school years, uh, there was this refrigerator box outside the condo that we were in, and she goes, oh, look at that box. That reminds me of a funny cartoon from when I was growing up. I don't know this cartoon, but it was a cartoon of some guy sitting in a box and saying, people are no damn good. And, and so my mom had this, she goes, come on, here, I'm going to go get in this box. Take my picture. That was my mom. She was a crack up. She was an outside of the box thinker. So then we both got in the box. Yeah, that's me and my mom in the box. But my mom taught me about hating. My mom was depressed. My mom after my dad left, when I was going into junior high, uh, her depression got worse. She began to abuse prescription medications for sleeping. She became more dependent on alcohol um, and ultimately had multiple suicide attempts through my adolescent years. I hated my mom. She was not providing me what I needed. I was being deprived legitimately of the kind of adolescence I needed, and I told her exactly that. Fuck you, mom! I yelled on a Sunday morning as I was going out to my car to go down to the church and teach the high school kids. <laughs> Fuck you, 
she was standing in the window of her bedroom that looked out on the street where my car was. And I don't even remember what she was upset about, but she was at the window like, rah, 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 rah. and I'm like, rah, rah, rah. And, and, and I hated her throughout my teen years, into my young adult years, into really the day she died to some degree. I had a lot, she, she was a force to be reckoned with, but she also taught me about love. Every time we had one of these things, she would step up. She was almost always the one that came to me and said, I blew my top. From the, she said, I blew my top. Literally, that was her phrase all our growing up years. I blew my top. I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize. Can we start over? Unfortunately, my mom never went to therapy. She really never learned about her own emotional regulation. I was doing a lot of that. I was getting empathy in my therapy and in my friendships. So I knew what I needed. And I knew that she couldn't provide it. And there was a, a necessary boundary, really. I had to keep her at an arm's length because I could not open my heart and be vulnerable with her because of her limitations. And isn't that part of what we're struggling with with our families right now, that the differences? The vulnerability that is necessary to feel safe is not available. And they're not able to help us with our own inner turmoil. Anthony can't call his mom and dad for prayer. Thankfully, he called me one day, and I got to pray for him. And that's who we become as a family. We figure out who the safe people are and who can support us in our times of need. We learn to say no. Boundaries help us love our enemies. Uh, fences make good neighbors. And Knowing where my property begins and ends is important. Not to be mean about it, but to say, you know what? I don't think uh, I'm going to come to that holiday gathering. It's just not good for me this year. And to give yourself the respect that you need to say no. Um, forgiveness. We need to let go of the judgments and condemnations we hold against ourselves. Because if we haven't learned to forgive ourselves, to let go of judging and criticizing and blaming ourselves, we're never going to be able to do it with others. Empathy, to put ourselves in the shoes of the other. To recognize that most of your family members and friends and parents who are being like, oh my God, really? They've had a journey. They have fears, insecurities, threats against their existential reality that have them the way they are. So empathy. My empathy for my mom really shifted after she died because, as I often like to say, my relationship with my mother improved greatly after she died. Because once somebody's dead, our opportunity is to let go of all the hurt and pain and suffering. And and take in and remember the good. When I was cleaning out my mom's stuff, I found this envelope that had a couple of letters in it. I, I had never read these before. One of the letters was to my brothers, all three of us, and then there was a note to each of us. 
This is what my mom wrote one time during my adolescence. Sissy, my darling, I love you very much. I am sorry that I was responsible for your father leaving home and destroying your childhood and adolescence. I do not know what I did wrong. I am sorry also that I am crazy and that I tried to commit suicide. I do not know what to do. I wish only the best for you and Brendan and Barney because I love all of you. But I cannot cope with life as it is. I will try. Please forgive me and love me. I need your love. Love, Mother Mora. I'm reading that took me into a lot of my therapy of recognizing that my mom did get it and she did take as much responsibility as she could and to forgive her and to find a way to love her. And then when I got into my 50s and I thought about my mom at 53 years old being left by her husband with two teenagers in home and another one in college having not worked in her career as an attorney for 20 years because she chose to become a stay-at-home mom, having to find her way back into the workforce, I began to understand why she drank, why she was suicidal, why she didn't, want, didn't have any energy to deal with me, because I started to put myself in her shoes. So the invitation of loving our enemies is really to work with ourselves first to deal with the logs in our own eyes. And then we will see clearly how to deal with our enemy. So as we go to into our conversation time, the question for you is this, what inner enemy do you need to love? Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.